Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Herman Lopez, ProPublica's Dara Lynn. I don't know if it's Infrastructure Week or not, but there is an infrastructure bill that has passed the United States Senate that is being held hostage to some slightly peculiar intracaucus dynamics in the House of Representatives, but seems likely to become law in something close to its current form. And so it's worth talking about, I think, not just the legislative gamesmanship around the bill, which is not our area of expertise and has sort of dominated the coverage, but like what is actually in the bill. There's quite a few things in the bill, some of which are not that, I don't know, there's like not that much weeds to go into, uh, but they're going to subsidize creating some electric vehicle chargers. They're going to put extra money into the normal state highway grant funds. Uh, They're going to put some extra money into mass transit new starts. There's some municipal water systems things in there that are probably earnest and and worth talking about someday. But something um, Herman was saying he's been working on that I want to know more about is rural broadband, which is a topic that circulates in the ether constantly, always seems like a good idea. People should have internet in rural areas. Certainly over the last like year and a half or so, there's been a very strong on the ground argument made that it's important to a lot of, you know, other that it serves a utility function in a lot of people's lives. Right. But I I never understand like exactly what the issue is. Like, what do we need to do here? And what's going on in this bill? So to to go into this a bit, essentially, the problem that has been really clear in the last year and a half, as Dara was alluding to, is the internet is obviously a big part of our lives. And not only is it a big part of our lives, but it's like a social mobility problem now for a lot of Democrats consider like, look, how are people going to rise up to these jobs that require working from home if they don't have good internet? So the issue, as far as I understand it, as, as far as experts have described it to me, is essentially that like, if you're a broadband company, why would you go to a rural area servicing like three people when you can go into an urban market and serve potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions? And that's essentially the calculus a lot of these internet companies make. So even if they do end up going to like rural areas, they'll offer really shitty service. I mean, the internet will go down all the time. 
I know plenty of people living in these rural areas and they constantly complain about just about every single internet provider out there because even if aside from like the download and upload speeds just being awful for even like doing Zoom calls or just watching Netflix or whatever, it's just constantly going down. They call the internet company. They don't do anything. And the bill sets out $65 billion to build out broadband nationwide. I should say that based on what I've heard from like activists and experts, this isn't enough money to like get truly universal, but it's like a huge chunk of money and will get us pretty close apparently. But even aside from that money, it does some like things like rules for uniform internet bills. So they've kind of compared this to a nutrition label, which I think is interesting. Uh, but in terms of like the uniformity that will be required for, for these kinds of internet bills, there will also be like permanent discounts offered to low income people, mandatory low cost options for everyone as well. And also, I think what could really matter here is a ban on digital redlining where internet companies are essentially told like, look, you can't just say in all these situations that like there aren't enough customers here and you're not going to expand your service to like a few miles out. Like right now, internet companies will arbitrarily stop even within like local or county jurisdictions because they'll say, eh, there aren't that many customers in this like mile range or, or whatever. And And that's one of the big things that the bill is trying to address here is like we need to make sure that like low-income people, rural people have access. And just because the internet companies assume they don't won't buy the internet doesn't mean they shouldn't get it. I mean, I think it's worth thinking about the sort of, you know, geometry of the the issue here, right? Because that that sort of explains how this problem arises, right? But, you know, it costs a little bit of money to string some wire, like from the main wire to a person's house. But what costs a lot of money is to like string that main wire out along the roads, right? The kind of backbone of the system. And so if you have a lot of houses on a given block, it makes a lot of sense to invest in that infrastructure, particularly if the houses are affluent and you think that they are likely to want to buy an expensive service from you. But the fewer people there are, right, like the more rural an area is and the lower income the area is, the less compelling it is to make that investment. And it's particularly true when you talk about the second investment, right? So like in D.C., I can get high-speed internet from Verizon, or I can get it from Comcast. That's not a super competitive marketplace, but it's not nothing, right? Like, if Verizon routinely was not fixing problems after outages, like, I could switch. To just, like, make it, yeah, to, like, underline the Normie point here, like, in practice, it often means that when you inevitably call your current provider and threaten to leave as a customer and then they offer you a better deal, that threat is not credible if you're operating in a de facto monopoly. Right. But also just business-wise, right, it's very unattractive to make the upfront investment to be the second provider in a low-density area because you're going to get like half the customers and it's not that many customers and you're going to be competing. So, you know, like your profit margins aren't going to be great. In a big city, it kind of makes sense to do these redundant builds. But you have to give people pretty large subsidies to make it worth doing in rural areas. 
And that's not new, right? I mean, it used to be that electricity was very unevenly distributed around the country because stringing electrical wires out to every random small town is like really not a great business in the way that like lights in Manhattan is like an amazing business. People really like lights. It's it's very useful. But, you know, if there's not that many people living someplace, it's expensive to bring them electricity. And the government put a lot of money into it at a certain point and just decided, you know, this is how it's going to be. Just like the post office uh, charges a flat rate no matter where it is you're, you're going. We sort of took electricity in that domain. And we kind of talk about broadband as maybe similar to those things, but have never really like done it, right? We've never really bitten the bullet on just, well, we're going to have to spend a ton of money to string wires to places where it's not really efficient because, you know, we just sort of think it's important. Although, I mean, we don't do it, even though rural areas are very overrepresented in the political system, which is part of what makes this sort of vexing to me. I mean, I guess this is this was a, a lure for some of the moderate senators to get on board with this is they have those rural constituents and, and they want to get the broadband. I think the the point about treating this as like a utility is really the relevant angle here in terms of like how I think a lot of legislators are thinking about this for the first time. I mean, this is this is by far the biggest investment that the U.S., if this bill passes, would make into expanding Internet access. And the way that they're approaching this, like none of it, if you read the actual details, seems like, oh, my God, this is such a radical, incredible plan. It just reads like this is what I imagine a lot of the initial expansions of like just access to electricity and things like that looked like a hundred years ago or whatever. And and it's the same thing here with with just approaching this dual problem of like one you do have a lot of low-income rural people who just can't afford internet access. And two, the companies, I mean, they're, they're not being, like, devious. They would like to make as much money as possible. And if they thought the customers were in an area, they would go there. So essentially by offering all this money and, you know, using some of the regulatory power of the federal government, their goal is to just make it an attractive option for these companies and, like, make it so people in rural areas can really afford it. It really just comes down to this basic concept of, hey, this is a utility. This is like a standard that everyone is going to need going forward. The last year and a half has shown this, and we need to take it seriously. So my question about this is like, as we know from utility grids, you know, certainly recent experience in Texas and less recent experience in California has demonstrated this. Like, it's not just about like, do you have a grid or not? It's about what is the carrying capacity and how you know, neatly does that match the demand? And it's certainly, and this is, you know, I think less primarily a policy issue than a future of work question that has like policy implications, but by the same token by which the last year and a half has demonstrated that remote work cannot happen without widespread broadband and therefore to, you know, have parts of the country that don't have broadband access is to, you know, limit them from the labor market. Like, Right now, it's very difficult for the people of the world, like at least like, you know, Herman and frankly, for certain parts of this pandemic, Matt as well, who have like who have either moved permanently out of the D.C. area, Herman, or who've like taken time in other parts of the country. Like it's hard when you're considering moving out of a major metropolitan area to think about, 
okay, what do I know about what broadband access is like in the communities I might be going to? It would be much easier in a world where you have this bill and know that there's a certain baseline guarantee. That's probably going to make people on the margin more likely to move to those areas. And so the question for me is the same question that you end up having with a lot of like transit policy and other kinds of infrastructure policy. Are you building to serve the existing population or are you building on the assumption that having that infrastructure in place will be a draw and will increase the population so that you don't end up with something getting overloaded almost as soon as it goes online? I mean, I think that, you know, the the sort of actual throughput capacity of the kind of fiber backbones is pretty good. And it's not so much that things get overloaded. What I do think a question about this is, is that Electricity transmission technology did not advance that much over a certain span of time, right? So there was a big investment in providing like electricity, quote unquote, to people's houses. And then, you know, electricity in 1965 and electricity in 2020 are like, it's pretty similar. You know, it's like you got the electricity, the outlets work, your lights turn on. The issue with broadband is, or at least one issue with broadband, is that it's a kind of a moving target, right? So like where I was last summer in Maine, it has internet speeds that are what we would have called broadband in a big city five to 10 years ago when they didn't have those speeds. But like by today's standards, it seems lacking. And so the technology evolves, our expectations evolve, right? Like we... Like web cameras aren't new, but like the idea that you could do things on video calls constantly is built on the assumption that you have contemporary fast internet connections. So you you kind of lag behind a moving target and it's hard to know. It's like no one-off bill is going to like create real equality around that. And I do think there's a question politically of like, do rural communities actually place very high value on this idea because like a like you can spend your own money on investing in local public services that you think are important uh communities around the country do that and b i mean you talk about different sort of marginalized groups in different contexts and you're sometimes talking about people who are underrepresented in the political system but like rural america is very heavily overrepresented in the political system and you see that right like the agriculture industry is treated much more kindly than the vast majority of of economic outputs in the united states and i just like haven't like historically seen that like i haven't seen strong evidence that the senators from Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Nebraska, these very low density areas, like that they actually care that much about rural broadband, seemingly because their constituents also don't care that much, possibly because you have a lot of self-sorting, right? Like, you know, people who do care enormously about access to It's like not hard to find a town in America, including some pretty small ones where like the internet is great. So I I mean, I, I wonder what the kind of like dynamic politics around this are going to be. Like, do we have a huge, like a transformation that sticks or a kind of one-off investment that goes away? I wanted to latch onto one thing you were talking about there, which is like the, the fact that this technology is always changing and like future proofing was a huge issue in terms of like the negotiations with some of these bills. So there was like 
there was essentially a, a debate between Democrats and Republicans on this, where Democrats wanted to encourage as much fiber buildup as possible because that'll have better speeds for everyone. And Republicans were essentially saying, no, if, if a cable company or an internet company decides, look, we, we just need to build like copper lines, which tend to be slower speeds, then that, that should be fine. And I could kind of understand the Republican side here to some extent, because their concern was if we made the bill about fiber, what if like 5G or 6G takes off? 7G, all the Gs. Yeah, all the Gs. What if that stuff takes off? Then like, what this investment in fiber had made sense. And like this idea of future proof, I think ultimately where the negotiations landed somewhere in the middle where they are encouraging like faster speeds, but there's like a threshold around a hundred download, 20 upload where that they've agreed to that will possibly let cable companies and internet companies just argue like, look, we can just build copper lines in some of these rural areas and that'll be good enough. And like there are concerns there about whether that's future proofing enough, but it just speaks to like some of the details in this bill about like because they're dealing with a with with a huge problem with this technology changing all the time, it's just not clear what ultimately is the best option, at least to me as a layman watching this, as a journalist anyway. Um, and it's a huge problem going forward with how Congress takes action because this stuff can change before the money actually goes out. So, I mean, is anyone making the argument that Matt was kind of implying, but from a public, from a private sector angle, that like that the reason you don't necessarily have to mandate, you know, current top of the line technology is that once you have presence in these rural communities, there's going to be a natural incentive to continue. You know, that's going to become an expectation. People are going to get more invested in having high quality access, and therefore they're going to become more responsive than they currently are to demand, or that like you know, demand will genuinely increase once people get used to the idea of having broadband? Or is the assumption that like rural communities are not going to exercise any more active demand for broadband access than they are now, but it's going to continue to be the responsibility of the federal government to make sure that they have these things because it will help them, you know, the theory goes in the long run. I think this is a big question mark right now where like, I mean, I think Congress feels pretty insulated from the public in a lot of ways and feel like they don't exactly have to be super responsive with policy in in some respects. So, like, I mean, Matt kind of alluded to this. If a few rural areas are demanding better access to Internet, that's in large part going to, like, a few moderate senators and a few moderate representatives. And who knows if they're actually going to take that cause up to the Senate or the House of Representatives in the same way, something that's being like truly nationally demanded might go. Um, and same thing with like, I, I mean, there are provisions in here that help like people in urban areas too, who are low income and experiencing digital redlining. So in those cases, we know how that goes. Those people have like in large parts been neglected in terms of policymaking for a long time in, in some of these places. I think it's a big question mark. It, it ultimately, like COVID changed a lot of things up. It suddenly made this issue much more relevant. Um, and the question going forward is whether working from home really does take off in the way that a lot of people expect, or if ultimately life goes back to normal. And while there's more virtual work, it's not really to the level that perhaps you would have expected based on on seeing COVID. Okay, I, I want to take a break here and, and talk about talk about the Amtrak provisions in this bill because I'm annoyed. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. 
Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So Joe Biden loves Amtrak. As we know, uh, he, as a United States senator, spent decades commuting daily from his home in Wilmington to Washington, D.C. Uh, in addition to that personal connection, Delaware is an unusual state in that it doesn't really have like an airport. So the Amtrak links from Wilmington to the other major cities of the northeastern United States are like really fundamental to the economy of Delaware. And it has a sort of unique relationship with Amtrak. In part, though, I mean, because Delaware is situated on the Northeast Corridor, it's there between D.C. and Philadelphia, not that far from New York, uh, in the sort of best train terrain of the country. At any rate, so Biden, he's got this bill, and it has a lot of money, about $60 billion for rail, some of that for freight, most of it for Amtrak. And you might be wondering, like, what kind of amazing futuristic trains are we going to be getting for $60 billion? And the legislation is not super specific, uh, at least in terms of what we know right now. It's not incredibly prescriptive. But Amtrak sort of put out through a CNN article that you should expect nothing in exchange for the $60 billion. They were warning you, don't expect the kind of high-speed trains that you see in Europe and Asia, that all of this money is going to be needed for maintenance backlogs, and they're not going to do anything of interest. Uh, then in parallel, Amtrak directly put out this kind of uh, document. It was their their vision document, they said. And it's got these various maps and things on it. And they're saying like, oh, there's going to be a train from Chicago to Madison, uh, Wisconsin. 
And then you look at it in detail. You know, they're proposing a train. It's going to run on the existing freight tracks. It's going to be slower than driving. It's going to leave four times a day. And, you know, I love trains. I I like Amtrak. That's like why I'm fired up about this. But nobody would take a train from Chicago to Madison that's slower than driving. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. You know, like it doesn't even like begin to make sense. High speed trains complete with planes where you can be a little bit slower than a plane and people will take the train anyway because it's more comfortable, uh, because airports are annoying, uh, because airports are usually far away from the downtown. The train is also great like if you're going specifically to New York City because if you take a car to New York City, you then have to park the car and parking the car costs like a fortune. If you're going almost anywhere else, it's like the opposite. It's like if you drive to Madison, then you have your car. But if you go to Madison some other way, then you don't have a car. So it's a it's a deficit. This all seems like really obvious, I think, to me and to anyone. And it's really aggravating that Amtrak is not focused on trying to make good trains or make them in places where people might want to ride the train and is instead I don't know what I don't know who they're trying to serve they just like they want as many lines as possible on on a map and this big infusion of money is like a great opportunity to try to impose some rigor in the thinking by either writing the bill in a more clear way or firing everybody. I mean, I don't know. But it's like you you can't spend $60 billion on improving passenger trains and then not have better trains. Like, that's insane. So I guess the fundamental question for me is, do you believe their assessment that the amount of money appropriated in the bill, like that all of that has to be used on maintenance backlog stuff? I mean, is that an issue of they just need to get more cost efficient in maintenance? Is it an issue of they're spending money on maintenance where they should just be scrapping existing infrastructure and plowing forward into the future? Or are you saying that there should be more money in this bill in order to get Amtrak to where it needs to be? I am very... The maintenance thing is is sort of... I, I guess one question is like, why are you running train routes that don't generate enough fare revenue to cover the cost of maintaining the infrastructure, right? Like, it's a little different from saying, you know, because I'll be like, okay, you know, there's environmental benefits, there's social benefits, you know, not everything has to be a profitable enterprise. And like, that's, that's fair enough. That's reasonable. But the theory that there are benefits, right, it does hinge on people riding the trains, right? If the ridership is so low, or the cost of providing the ridership is so high, that it like literally can't cover the depreciation of the rolling stock. Like there's something wrong with that. Like I, it, it's difficult for me to second guess their like exact analysis of like how safe is the train ties here. But they're saying in the article, it's like, oh, you know, thanks to this bill, it's like passengers aren't going to need to bring their own duct tape with them to ride on the train, which I I mean, I've ridden on the train. That's not actually my experience of it. But it just it raises the question of what are they doing, right? And it's a difference between, you know, maintenance and upgrade, 
Mountains, right? So if you were looking at the Northeast Corridor and you were to say, there's this tunnel into Baltimore that's like really old. Part of it being old is that it has a really narrow diameter. Part of it having a narrow diameter, I don't really understand physics, but it's like the trains can't go fast because of the air displacement and the narrow size of, of, of the tunnel. So you could say, okay, well, we're replacing this tunnel, right? You know, or we are straightening a curve someplace, or we're replacing the um, the wires that go above the train. It's called a catenary. There's one that's called a constant tension catenary that's like better. So if you say, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna replace this stuff, and that's what we need new capital funds for. But then the output of that is that the trains can go faster, right? And that's how like we or you know a congressional staffer could say like you could check on your calendar, right? Like they said by X date. Thanks to this upgrade, the trains would be faster. What's disturbing to me about the like the pure maintenance, they call this in New York, the MTA calls this state of good repair. And it's like money that gets spent on things without any clear indication that anything is ever going to actually improve. And it's very like it's just questionable, right? Like, like, where does the money go exactly? Like, why are you identifying projects that have that character? The broadband situation is actually quite parallel, right? Like, trees fall on these rural broadband lines. Like, they they need to do something uh, to keep them up and running. But if you were talking about a $60 billion infusion of funds whose, like, only stated purpose was to prevent the internet from breaking... Like, you would just be saying that's very unambitious, right? Like, you know, so maybe $60 billion will get universal service to everybody, or maybe it won't. But presumably it'll get service to somebody, right? Like, you know, and then you could say, well, okay, if we'd had $10 billion more, we could have reached everyone, or $20 billion or, or something, right? But, like, if you have a broadband, like a rural broadband bill, like, you expect some people who currently don't have access to high-speed broadband to get it. And like, that's just obvious, right? And like, if we look back, if this passes and 10 years from now, there's like no town in America that has gotten fast internet, we're gonna be like, that didn't work. Like that was that was bad, we fucked up. And to set the bar so low to be like, well, the trains won't break. We need $66 billion. Like, it's just, it's bizarre to me. You know, budget wise, if you look at what high-speed rail construction costs, in Europe, like $60 billion should be enough to have a high-speed train from Boston to Washington. Now, maybe you don't want to do that. Like maybe you want to build a train someplace else or, or something like that. But it's a lot of money. I've kind of experienced this problem. Recently, I had to go to Chicago to renew my Spanish passport. And I had been kind of spoiled from living in D.C. Like if I wanted to go to New York or Baltimore, I could just get on a train. So I was like, maybe I'll try that here in Cincinnati, like Cincinnati to Chicago. And there were like two big problems immediately just looking at Google. One is that it was at 1 a.m. The only train was running at 1 a.m. And two, it was nine hours, which was like double the time it takes to just drive there. So I think to the, the point that like these trains don't even make enough money to for maintenance. I mean, surely part of that must be that like there are a lot of people like me looking this up and being like, I'm not going to ride that. And then they lose revenue because these trains aren't faster. It is just to say that if like if these trains were built to a, a I don't know if the Cincinnati to Chicago line would ever be profitable, but if it was going at like four hours, like that's something I would consider since I don't have to drive and I hate driving. 
But if you have to do it, then it, like if you have to s- sit there for nine hours at 1 a.m., it, it's just not going to be an option. There are going to be less people riding. There are going to be less revenues. So you're going to have to come back to Congress regularly asking for more money for maintenance. It just seems like a very s- stupid, self-defeating model in, in, in that sense. I mean, it also seems a little bit like, you know, the the fundamental problem of is it a binary variable or is it a continuous variable, right? Like, are you satisfying the need for infrastructure if you grant that, like, this is something that a everyone ought to have access to and b that there are certain marginalized populations who will be especially hurt if they do not have access to it is simply providing something sufficient to check that box Or do you actually need to take into account, is it of high enough quality that people can actually use it? We see this often, or like in pre-pandemic times, saw this often with like municipal bus routes and infrastructure, right? You would have a lot of circumstances in which like the bus routes weren't operating frequently enough or there weren't enough buses running for it to be a practical option for like the places where low-income people actually lived, especially as like gentrification pushes the frontiers of that in various directions. And that's not necessarily as sensitive to people's, you know, people aren't necessarily going to change policy based on that. But when you have, okay, we're going to remove this route entirely, that's when you are thinking about, okay, who are we underserving? Who are we, you know, do we have a certain obligation to provide something? And like in practice, if it's going to take two hours to commute by bus into a city and then two hours to commute back, and if you don't make the precise half hour time that that bus is leaving, you're not going to be able to make it home all right or make it into work. Like in practice, that's not an effective way to commute, and you're not going to be able to take that job. And it seems like there's a disconnect in terms of, you know, when we think that infrastructure is sufficient rather than just being in place. Well, and I I think that that really underscores the the core of how Amtrak is thinking about this, right? That like if you think of the train as like a public service, and then they want to provide the train to as many communities as possible. And so they will look at it. And so they do concede, right, that this Cincinnati to Chicago route that you have to get on the train in Cincinnati in the middle of the night, that that doesn't work. Um, that's not really a train for Cincinnati, right? It's a train that that passes through. So in their current proposal, like they, they call out this, this Cincinnati to Chicago thing specifically. And they say, well, OK, well, we want to raise the frequency Chicago to Cincinnati to four times a day. Right. So you'll have this like midnight train, but also three trains that come during the daytime. And it's going to be faster than a car. It's about a four hour drive. I guess it's closer to five hours. So it's going to be a little under four on the train, but it's still going to be way slower than flying. Right. It's a two hour flight, Chicago to, to, to Cincinnati. Cincinnati is not like a like a mass transit hub. Right. Where tons of people are getting around carless. Um, so the you know, the the driving option is pretty compelling. There's also a ton of flights from Chicago to Cincinnati. I mean, I'm just looking it up. It looks like United at 730, uh, American at 745, Southwest at 830, American again at 938, Southwest again at 1010, United again at 1050. So, you know, is four times a day like really going to make this? compelling because you have to think of the travel time, right? Like it's faster than a car, but with a car, you can just leave whenever, 
right? You don't need to wait for one of the three trips a day. It's slower and less frequent than a plane. It's not to say you could never have Cincinnati to Chicago train service. They're reasonably sized cities. But you'd have to spend like a lot of, like you'd have to really commit to it, right? Like you'd have to say, okay, we are going to American, United, and Southwest fly this route. And we are going to compete head to head with those three airlines. We're going to have frequent service. It's going to be fast. And I think if you pencil it out, you might say, okay, that's going to cost a lot of money to build. And it's just like, it doesn't make that much sense, like in the scheme of things. Or it might make sense. But what they're doing now is kind of like half-assing it. You know, it's like, well, we're going to have a train but like, it's not going to be a train anyone's really going to want to take, or at least they're not going to pay a high fare to take it. And if you do that, then you're not going to be able to pay for the maintenance. And then you're going to be coming back to Congress saying, well, we need money to like fix the cars on our sad sack train. And like, why? Why do that? Right. Whereas lots of people take the train from D.C. to New York all the time. If the train was much faster, even more people would do it. Or they would pay a higher fare. And if the train was really fast, you would go from D.C. to Boston on the train, right? Like it's a it's a it's like a known market where the investment is going to pay off. But you have to get out of a kind of, um, you know, like an uncanny valley, right, where you're going from, OK, the train goes uh, at 1 a.m. and it takes nine hours to like, OK, the train also leaves at 6 a.m. and it takes five hours like, that's a big improvement, but it's not, like, why would you do it? It's just, like, it's it's not hard to get to Chicago. It's also just barely competitive with driving. Like, it's still just, like, I think I would, st- I mean, Chicago is a giant city. It's nice to have a car to get around. Like, if I'm going to the Spanish embassy, to the train station, and all of that, it would be nice to avoid that entire thing and just drive directly to the nearest parking garage and uh, then get my passport and leave. So it is just if it, if, even if it's just like one hour faster, I'm honestly not sure if that's competitive enough. And, you know, maybe the ultimate judgment, like you said, is this line just isn't worth building. And we should do the like high density markets that we're actually doing well in already and build those out more. Right. I mean, that's where I, I, that's such a fundamental difference between the northeastern United States and the Midwest is like. Is having the car at the end of your destination like a pro or a con, right? And of course, it varies. You know, it, it depends what you're doing, but it's just it's so much more likely, right, that you're going to find yourself in New York or DC being like, "Oh shit, where am I going to park this car?" Versus you're going to be in Cincinnati, you're going to be like, "Oh shit, how am I going to get where I'm going because I don't have a car?" Right? And it's like. I mean, this is obviously not unknown, I think, to the people who work in the transportation department. Like, we've all been places in America and kind of know this, but it's not really integrated into the planning, right? Versus if you're talking about competing with airplanes, then, like, that's fine. But, like, your train has to be really fast to compete with an airplane because airplanes are fast. That's my big policy insight. I will point out that the Cincinnati example gets a little bit weird when we talk about versus an airport, because it's not just that the Cincinnati airport is like not as centrally located as downtown, but that it is literally in Kentucky. So like you got it. You got to add a little bit of time there. But other than that, yes, as someone with extensive experience not having a car in Cincinnati, Ohio, it is not an experience that I recommend. (laughs) Yeah, that's weird. That's a weird life story. 
Yeah, that's why if you live downtown, it's it's only 20 minutes away. It is it is a little weird. I love how they call it the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky Airport as if that really makes any sense. But <laughs> Well, the D.C. airports are in Virginia. That's life. I, yeah, I but that's only so. because like Virginia took back, you know, a large chunk of the 10 mile square. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. OK, let's let's take a break and let's let's talk about predicting recessions. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right. This week's white paper is an NBER working paper called The Economics of Walking About and Predicting Unemployment by David G. Blanchflower and Alex Bryson. There's... Some unique analysis here, but really this the point of this paper is to kind of tell a story, which is that when the 2007-2008 recession hit, a lot of central economic planners, especially in Europe, spent a lot of time saying there's no way we could have predicted this, even though in practice, you know, things had already started happening in America six months earlier. You know, there certainly would have been some indicators. So there's something of a kind of building the historical case that a lot of throwing up of hands and no one could have predicted happen what happened when instead people should have been a little bit more sensitive to to the inputs that they weren't looking at. And from there, they build the case that not only is it a good thing for economists and especially central banks to be trying to predict recessions, but that they can do that by turning their attention away from more traditional indicators of labor market rigidity and toward 
survey-based assessments of like how normal people think the economy is going and what employees and their employers think about the chances of, you know, they're losing their jobs in the next 12 months and that sort of thing. And I admit that I initially came to this paper thinking, oh, the economists think they've invented a new way to predict things and was very uh, jaundiced about it and have was totally sold, not for any like rational reason, to be clear, but just because it turns out that it flatters my preconceptions about economists and the way that they use various classes of information, because this is essentially saying economics thought that it had developed these fancy, complicated tools to predict how the economy was supposed to go instead of valuing the central insight of microeconomics, which is that pricing is an allocation of information and that the ideal for an efficient market is that people are going to have all of the relevant information and that is going to be reflected in the price. And like, there are lots of challenges at both the micro and macro scales to the idea that the price of something reflects the kind of most perfect allocation of information about its value. But it is striking to me that the story of this paper is essentially economics, which was born as a science because people were like, hey, Maybe we should understand that when you have a market in which goods are being freely traded, that the price at which something lands is going to reflect the assessment of the actors who are closest to it about how much it's going to cost to continue to produce and what its value is in terms of demand. And went from there to going, no, 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 we shouldn't think about what the people on, actually on the ground have to say about employment. We should be looking at these larger structural things about the labor market that aren't necessarily going to be as sensitive to real world conditions and therefore might not have the predictive ability to say 12 months out, 24 months out, are we going to be in a position where we're going to need to do some stuff to shore up a flailing economy? Well, I was just going to say there's a lot of interesting stuff in here about this debate over economics where it should be like predictive or reactionary, essentially, some of the stuff you were alluding to. And I don't know, one of my, I think well, one of the points that, that I was really sold for, for this idea of like being predictive, which I, I mean, I don't think it's like a crazy controversial idea necessarily that you should try to predict recessions. People would love if we could do that reliably. But it, it kind of surprised me that there are some economists who have just completely given up on the concept as, as far as I can tell. Like there was this quote from this British economist, uh, Jan, I'm sorry if I'm butchering this name, but it's Jan Vliegi and... They essentially argued that, like, well, you know, doctors just treat healthcare problems and they don't try to predict a heart attack. They just try to treat it after it happens. And I just found that so telling because that is completely wrong. Right. And the authors actually, like, have a great deal of fun pointing out how wrong that is. Yeah. Like, you go to annual checkups, even if you're completely healthy, because you're hoping that you can, like, catch some health problems early. So... I mean, it's just to like argue for the utility of doing this. I, I would say like I read the study. I, I don't know if this model will hold up in future recessions. Based on what they said, it, it seems to hold up for the Great Recession. Maybe kind of did something for COVID, but I doubt it because you wouldn't expect people to know 12 months in advance that COVID was coming. 
But still, at least the idea seems sound to me. Yeah, they are doing something of a two-step on the COVID recession. They're saying, like, on the one hand, yes, of course, we're not saying that someone could have predicted a pandemic by looking at looking at survey data about people's assessed odds of unemployment. On the other hand, they're saying, given that there was some softness and worry in these metrics starting as early as 2016, it should have been possible to predict that there was going to be a recession at some point and or that the recession was going to hit the COVID recession was going to hit particularly hard in Europe. And like, I think that when you're saying that there's a three to four year window in which, you know, if someone is saying in 2016 that they expect unemployment to be high 12 months from now, and you're pointing to that to say we should have known something was coming in 2020, that's not super useful predictively because they're not just talking about like, should econ bloggers be able to like take victory laps and say, I saw this coming 12 months ago. They're saying, should central banks be thinking about this when they're setting economic policy? And like, I don't think the case is particularly strong for a central bank in 2016 should have been planning for a 2020 recession based on the information they were getting then about 2017. So I think that there is I, I agree with you, Herman, that this might be a little bit overfitted to the Great Recession and a little bit underfitted to, you know, the possibility that we're going to continue to have global but event-driven recessions going forward. You know, one thing in terms of these like doctor analogies and, and this other stuff that's always hard to get your mind around is that economics is a discipline. It's like an academic thing, right? Like there's all these professors and they publish stuff. It's also a policy thing. Like lots of economists work for the government. And also most people like don't cross that barrier, but lots of people do, right? There's always lots of traffic between academic economics works and in particular central bank work, but also some other government things. Like it's normal for the president to appoint at least one often several like well-regarded academic economists to high level jobs, which is not the way these things normally work, right? Like the FBI director is never like a sociologist from Princeton who had like a really good study of how organized crime functions, right? You know, there's in most fields, there's like more of a conceptual distinction between like policymaking and researching stuff. Shout out to the Weeds Time Machine episode on the Volcker shock if you want to know more about how this shifted. Yeah. Uh, but so it's like one issue with predicting recessions is always that like, if you could predict the recession, it probably wouldn't happen, right? Like, now, maybe, like, you could, right, if everybody's ignoring you. But if you're, like, a famous economist, right, like, you'd be invited to Jackson Hole to present your paper. The other people, like the Fed researchers, would go take a look at it. The Council of Economic Advisors would think about what you're saying. And if your work was convincing, like hopefully your work would be convincing. Hopefully people would pay attention to what you're saying. And then they would do something different, right? So we had this question. There's a, a traditional recession indicator is when uh, bond yields become what they call inverted. So like the interest rate five years out is lower than the interest rate one year out. There's an observed regularity that when that happens, a recession normally occurs. Uh, but the most recent time that happened, the Fed started taking policy actions to prevent a recession from happening. So, you know, people in the economics takes universe started talking about like, well, how are we going to think about this, right? Like, 
if a recession doesn't happen, do we say that shows like the yield curve is meaningless or do we say that shows the policy response worked? Then as it happens, there was a COVID pandemic. So if you are incredibly naive about it, you'd say, aha, like this is another win for the yield curve indicator. But like that's definitely wrong. Like we who lived through it know that that's just a coincidence. But like it's in the data, right? If, if you wanted to, to train it. So... I don't know. It's like I have mixed feelings about the whole thing. It's like, how will we know if this is a reliable means to predict recessions? Like, maybe the European Central Bank will start paying more attention to this, and then the recessions won't happen, which would be good. Like, that's a good outcome for the world, but kind of bad for social science, which needs it needs at least a couple runs of policymakers completely ignoring this research so that we can see how reliable it is. I was actually wondering about this a little bit on the converse side, which is like in the status quo world where central banks aren't acting on this information, that doesn't stop private actors from acting on it, right? And I do wonder if there's like, if essentially what you're looking at, and they do assess that like, of several different survey-based indicators, including what do people think about unemployment? What do people think about the economy? What do employers think about unemployment in their industries? That like all of those independently predict recessions. But in terms of the employer thing in particular, it strikes me as plausible that if you're an employer and you believe that you're you know, that you're going to be facing a lot of demand softness in the next 12 months, one thing you might do to prevent that from, you know, taking your company into the red is to cut staff where you can now and therefore depress employment in your industry. And so I do think that, in you know, it's possible that there's certain amounts of feedback effects here, probably not to the extent that they can sink an entire economy, but that we're kind of double counting the uncertainty because it is feeding action as well as indicating something in the future. Just to build on that, I mean, I was like, what if these metrics that these authors suggest became really widespread? Basically, everyone knew about them. It would be like a society of people like galaxy braining each other into recessions, (laughs) essentially. Like they're like, oh, like, look, these numbers look bad. I'm going to cut my spending, start saving. I'm going to cut back employment if I'm an employer and, and so forth. And like, then you actually have a recession that in theory should have been avoided with these metrics. And to some extent, though, these these problems remind me a lot of the like problems. I mean, I, I write a lot about public health, obviously. So it is just like, like, even if these metrics were preventing recessions, I mean, one thing we've seen a lot of with like uh, disease spread pandemics is like, if you're successful, the public will not even notice that you were successful. One of the reasons we talked last week about the Ebola uh, outbreak and like one of the reasons there was a political backlash to that is because the policy was successful Americans felt comfortable criticizing what they thought went wrong even as people weren't getting sick like it wasn't a, a legitimate crisis but like the public didn't see the benefits as clearly as say the Vulcan Obama administration did so it is just to speak to like in both these senses it seems like these these kinds of metrics predictive metrics could backfire and like one they might help cause a recession if people are are trying to get ahead of it or two it it might produce a success and we won't even really know if it's a success 
Yeah, and you know, I mean, one difference with the public health interventions, right? I mean, there's something the central banking world has gotten reasonably good at is like coming up with levers they can pull and buttons they can press that are not that disruptive to people's lives. So that like if central banking goes well, you know, people don't necessarily get congratulated, like good job on avoiding the recession I didn't notice. Uh, But they also don't necessarily get yelled at, right? It's like, if something goes wrong, there's a tendency to yell at the central bankers because you were supposed to have good outcomes rather than bad ones. But if you have good outcomes, it's just nobody pays attention, you know, which is sort of ideal. Whereas when you're saying, well, okay, we're going to like cancel school or like tell everybody to wear masks. It's like everybody notices the intervention. And then if the intervention fails, it's like, well, we wore all these masks and it didn't help. And if the intervention succeeds, it's like, well, we wore all these masks for no reason. And you're in a really difficult situation, right? And they haven't yet unearthed in the infectious disease context, like an equivalent of behind the scenes interest rate manipulation, where if you do your job correctly, at least, everybody gets off your back, right? That would be the virtue of this, right? If central bankers can get better and better and better at forecasting economic problems, they really can just sort of address them with their toolkit and everybody can be happy, which is what we want. I would say one other difference too is like, I think there's a difference between an improving economic situation. People feel good about that. Whereas like, I'm not getting Ebola and I'm not dying. I mean, like, I think people just expect that to be the case, like not necessarily with in the same way that they might expect, like improving economic conditions in their lives. So at least, you know, you have something to feel good about where it's just like I'm maintaining the bare minimum for my health is not that exciting. At some point, this does kind of get to the fundamental problem of like the difference between household economics and macroeconomics, right? That like the reasonable response in a household economics context to I'm afraid there's going to be a recession is I'm going to stop spending and start saving. While that is very not good for not causing a recession. And I do think that at a certain point, you know, especially because household economics are so moralized and there's so much uh, willingness to blame people who find themselves you know, short on liquidity for not saving more, that like that problem isn't just, you know, kind of a fun Alanis Morissette irony. It's actually a genuine problem for preventing recessions, because if you have information being sufficiently widespread, then people are going to react rationally. And if you don't want people to react rationally to having information, you're going to either want to try to restrict that information or you're going to have to be in a position where you accept that, like, just by saying, hey, we might be coming into a recession, you're going to make that recession more likely. Isn't it ironic? Uh, OK, uh, with, with, I think with that, we should clear it up. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Annette Smith-Savadov. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS Via, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. 
It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A.